You know, the great thing about engineering is, is that engineers are all kinds of people. And, you know, I think the thing that's most common to all engineers is just that they, they solve problems. It's not just about a business problem, a technical problem, a process problem. It's about coming up with creative ways to solve these problems. One of the great skills of engineers, we're just curious. We just want to learn, ask questions and take measures to really take action. The path isn't always direct. Sometimes it needs a substitution. But in the end, you have to solve the, the problem and use creativity a lot to get there. I always describe it a little bit like the Madonna of careers. You just keep recreating yourself throughout your own career. You can be whatever you want to be ultimately. Hello, my name is Dusty Rhodes and you're welcome to our Engineers Journal Amplified podcast. This is the first in a three-part special on digitalization in engineering, where experts at the forefront of their engineering fields will explore how digitalization has been woven into the fabric of business and society and how Irish engineers are rising to the challenge. Today, we have three amazing guests for you. Jeffrey Rowe is Teltlick Head of Engineering, who has gained a wealth of experience in building public transport systems from bike share schemes to parking and port traffic access management systems. Susanna Rourke is an engineer and managing director of Triskel Consulting, who helps startup companies navigate the technical and regulatory requirements for new medical devices. And finally, we have Veronica Mariti Sesoko, who is working with Accenture The Dock as an operations senior analyst, but previously worked as an engineer in the Smart City team at Dublin City Council. And it's some of her experience there she'll be sharing with us. You're all very welcome to the podcast. Uh, before we dig down into some specific projects, which I know you're going to talk about, can I ask each of you to give us just a bit of an overview of how technology plays a part in your day-to-day -day work. Uh, we'll start with Jeffrey. I guess digitalization has allowed us to bring a lot of, of admin staff and we're able to bring those kind of efficiencies by leveraging different technologies around uh, digitalization and enable those companies to scale in a way that it wouldn't be just possible if they're doing it all by, by hand or having people do all the data entry and the processes. Suzanne, you're in the medical field. How has digitization shaped patient experiences over the last 20 years? So, you know, I think it's it's really interesting because when I think of digitization, um, a lot of the time I immediately go, oh, it doesn't really apply to medical devices. But, you know, when I was thinking back on my own career, I spent quite a number of years working with active implantable devices. So those are devices like your pacemakers, your cardiac defibrillators and your heart failure devices. All of those devices inherently work with embedded firmware and software to control how they listen to the heart and how they respond with therapy. But a huge impact um, with that technology that's been around for so long, actually, is remote monitoring, where a lot of these patients would have what used to be a bedside monitor that wirelessly would pick up uh, information from the device. So if they'd had, for instance... Um, some kind of a heart arrhythmia and the device had to kick in and treat it, that could get uploaded to their doctor's clinic and the doctor could actually review that event remotely. And, you know, particularly with heart failure patients, their weight sometimes will go up and down because, you know, they have an increase in, in fluid in the body if their heart is not working. 
And again, with remote monitoring, it stops patients having to potentially travel a really long distance to go to a clinic for, you know, what, what could be fairly routine treatment or modification of medication for, the, for those patients. And, you know, the other hidden benefit is it gives patients a sense of, of reassurance, you know, that there's something watching. So, you know, kind of that's my first experience of it. But, you know, today when you look at how digitization is affecting, you know, devices, you can see it, you know, from the Fitbits that we wear on our wrists, Apple Watches. Now, not all aspects of those wearables are considered medical devices, but certainly the AFib app that's on those is FDA approved and is CE marked as a medical device. And, you know, then other things like patient tracking in hospitals, hopefully we'll all have electronic patient files that when you travel, your information can travel much more easily with you. So if you're on holidays, your treating doctor potentially on holidays can access your files from from far away. Just on that point, Suzanne, I was going to ask, is this digitization really kind of getting that joined up approach to people's medical records? So I, I think the technology is well and truly there. Um, there's no doubt about that part. But there are challenges around things like GDPR, uh, information crossing geographic boundaries and some of the, the legislation that's there to protect people's health privacy. Um, you know, and some of, some of that can, can slow things down. So, you know, so there, there is still a lot of work, I think, to match up what is technically capable with, you know, what we can do within the realms of uh, protecting people's privacy, but also making sure that they can get healthcare at, at the point that they need it much more quickly and more efficiently. Veronica, uh, your area is in planning for cities. Now, that's a fairly big thing to get, get into your head. How, how has digitization changed the way we approach city planning? Yeah, so I think it's very interesting because where I work is innovation. So it's smart cities. It's really how we can use that digitalization and many different tools and technologies that are coming up to actually improve our city, how we can run more efficiently, how we can better engage with our citizens, how we can also make better decision-making based on data and being transparent with people. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about digital twins and Basically, it's it's how we can start populating and visualizing the city or the proposed uh, new city uh, within the context and overlaying loads of different data sets, being able to visualize in a more uh, friendly way. So using 3D models and then how we can engage and explain all those visualizations to people in a way that they can interact with the model. So we are adding transparency. We are being able to do that in web browsers so people can just go to a website, interact, give us some feedback. We can capture all of those, analyze this feedback, and then based on those, make our decisions. And always like comfort of your home, uh, being very like two ways, kind of like channel to engage with our citizens. So I think it's a win-win for everyone. Now, you're all working in vastly different sectors of engineering, and it's clear to see that digital systems do help speed, uh, they do help efficiency and accuracy. Uh, But let's start getting into some specific projects that you've been working with. Uh, Jeffrey, I'd like to start with yourself. You've worked on a big project around traffic flow, which you did in Senegal. Can you give us an overview of that uh, project? 
Yeah, so it's based down in Dakar, the capital city of uh, of Senegal, which kind of acts like a, a gateway for the for the neighboring countries. It's a very it's a very busy port. So before we got involved, it was all a bit of an archaic uh, paper system. Trucks would uh, line up, uh, queue for days uh, to get access to the port. There wasn't uh, much efficiency or throughput. And so we got involved to really bring it a level of digitalization and uh, business processes to the project. So they're involved in putting in lots of equipment like uh, cameras, barriers, uh, holding areas in the port itself, and then uh, 100 kilometers away from the port. So we could manage and better give people reliability and set expectations that if you have a booking to go and uh, collect a shipment from the port, that you would be there at three o'clock and there would be space and traffic available. So we saw some some great successes in, in terms of the, the throughput of trucks and then the reliability in terms of people having that guaranteed uh, visit time and that uh, kind of reassurance to uh, a lot of the transport and logistics companies and enabled the the port authority to really uh, increase the amount of boats and shipping that they have into their port. And we could really do that because of the digitalization and because we're a remote team here uh, here in Ireland and uh, we only have a small team on the ground. We leverage a lot of that kind of digital technologies that allowed our engineers to remotely monitor the, the equipment, uh, set up all the processes, video calling, all the kind of tools that were used to and allowed us to do a project that's so far away. When you first came to the project, how paper-based was it? Was it entirely paper-based or had they dipped their toe in digitization at all? It was entirely paper-based. You had to go to had to go to one office, get a piece of paper, then go to the uh, the customs office, get another piece of paper for a, a different time, and then you would be given an approximate time based on when the ship would arrive, maybe in two or three days, depending on weather. It had no systems in place to deal with weather, traffic flow, the rate that you would uh, unload ships. There was all these variables, so they couldn't give you an accurate time, or they couldn't even let you know that uh, the ship was delayed in a meaningful way. So we brought those systems in place like driver app, alerts you know where we we monitor the traffic flow on a street and we can tell oh we model that this street is able to take 50 trucks an hour and if we notice it's reaching capacity we have algorithms to automatically alert people that uh, that their update that their time for collection will be slightly in the future so we brought all those kind of smarts and those tools on place to pretty much transform an archaic system of paper from multiple people to an all online a digital system where you have the tools, the statistics, where people can make predictions, they can make plans for future growth and capacity building. Now, people don't like change. And when you have people who are used to dealing with paper and, you know, that's ah, the way it is, what can I do? There's a three-day delay. And all of a sudden, everything is efficient and they have to do stuff on smartphones and apps. They can actually be quite hesitant about getting involved. What was the reaction of people uh, at the port in Senegal? So we're dealing with, with uh, lots of different stakeholders. For for example, the truck drivers, there was no place for them to queue. Uh, although there was some upset about switching to a digital system, but then when we told them, you can park in this lovely holding area, we'll put in facilities like toilets, restaurants, 
uh, a prayer room. So all these extra facilities that you can use while you wait was the kind of the, the carrot that we got them to come on board. And then the local community were, were really uh, happy about the project because of the, uh, the air quality. Like we went from uh, idling trucks uh, in the street, you know, uh, with problems with, uh, with air quality to being trucks nicely parked in a, in a car park. There's no hanging around. There's no engines running. So I think all the stakeholders became, uh, were happy with the project, but it came a lot down to education, finding uh, local champions. We were very much concerned about us being a, an outside Irish company coming in. We found local champions, local leaders to help us get the message across that it's a win-win for everybody if we help you adopt to this digitalized system. What what was the biggest challenge on that project that, that was wrecking your head that you had to fix? I guess the the, the biggest challenge would be it's definitely uh, the language barrier and dealing with the level of uh, education. You know, you have uh, lots of local uh, tribal languages, and of course, we can't uh, we couldn't uh, translate into uh, into every language. So it's about commuting uh, and making the processes uh, simple and streamlined. For example, your first language is, uh, majority of people down there, their first language is French, but a, a lot of the truck drivers, uh, their first language isn't French, or if they're coming from Mali or something, they might speak a more local uh, dialect. It's the big challenge was making the system simple enough that anyone uh, with, with basic language skills in the languages that we could provide, that they could uh, understand it and then and process through the process. So you were kind of simplifying everything as much as possible. Were you using iconography as well so that you would be communicating through pictures for what people had to do? Exactly. So a lot of it was pictures, uh, signage at all the ports, having enough uh, training and uh, onboarding processes. So uh, we decided uh, that we wouldn't do like a big bang switchover. It would be a gradual process. We wouldn't just, uh, you know, leave everybody out to dry or feel that they're left in a void or, or, or missing out on, on the change in systems. It was much a, a gentle process to bring everyone along with us because these people have been driving or the drivers uh, for their whole careers. We didn't want to just uh, end their career and make them, uh, you know, irrelevant anymore. We wanted to bring them all with us. So it was a lot of uh, local education, local meetings, and to get people uh, on board the new system. Now, it sounds amazing that, you know, kind of you're based in Ireland. The project is based in Senegal. <laughs> How did that work? Were you doing a lot of remote working, were you? Well, uh, we we had uh, we found a, a great local partner uh, uh, down there. Uh, the majority of the of the software and systems would be uh, designed uh, here in Dublin, and then uh, we had uh, two two staff based down there. Uh, and uh, during the initial construction of the project, so installing all the equipment, setting up the cameras, the servers, that sort of stuff, a lot of that we would send down uh, engineers for about a, a five to six week period. But a lot of it can be managed uh, remotely. And one of the, the big challenges that we kind of have to overcome because of this distance is we have to remember that in that city, we have an unreliable uh, power grid and an unreliable uh, internet connection. So we had to build a lot of uh, fault tolerances into the system that, that it would still work without internet that there would be uh, local copies, and when the internet would return, we'd have this uh, cross-syncing uh, uh, system where information that would be just stored locally would then be synced uh, into the cloud. So we had all that processes, that extra, extra resilience that we built into the system for this 
uh, reason because we were so remote. Veronica, let me ask you about a project you were involved in, and this is the Digital Twin Program, which is being developed by Dublin City Council. What What is the program? Yeah, so it's very nice to hear from Jeffrey because we have a lot of crossovers as well. So pretty much uh, in Dublin City Council, we are developing a digital twin program and that's composed by five pillars. And one of them is actually looking at climate change and sustainability. And it's pretty much how we can replicate what is happening in the city, collecting all those data about traffic, about air quality, and how we can visualize all of those in the same layer, we can include the 3D model of the city and then we can start doing like studies to better understand how things work. And then after, uh, when we can explain easier uh, to people how those things correlate and you can prove those, we can also start like running simulations and a little bit of those predictions uh, that Jeffrey was like talking about. Uh, we had another four pillars. Uh, so one of them is about emergency service. So we were doing with Dublin Fire Brigade and that one was really looking at building 3D models of high-risk buildings uh, in relation to fire and how we could overlay loads of information about what are the hydrant locations, the, pan the alarm panel, all the hydrants, uh, all the contact points. So in case of a fire, they have all those pre-instant plans already and on the way they can go studying. So it can save time for them, especially because they are not their day-to-day -day in that building. So they also told me, oh, it's very hard because we don't know the building and it's full of smokes. So you actually don't know where you're getting. So they could do surveys internally as well and start doing like routescapes and tagging pictures of like areas that could be a very high risk uh, for them or areas that could be prioritized, for example. Uh, the third pillar that we're doing, it's a little bit more like soft light touch. Uh, it's about tourism and economy. So we are building um, augmented reality or AR applications to try to do like storytelling. So we're building for Docklands area, a heritage trail. So tourists uh, can come and point, see how it looked like years ago. And then it has a full narrative. So just get to talk a little bit about our heritage and how it was before. And you can just visualize how it's now at the same time. Uh, the fourth one, it's really looking at that first part that I was talking uh, on the planning side of the city. So how we can start building 3D models of the city. When we have new proposed buildings, we could insert those that the architects and developers are already building in 3D. And then we see all of those in context. Uh, and then we can engage better with our citizens in an interactive way using a web browser platform. So people can just go play, have a look, loads of questions that they have. It's about, oh, but how tall that's going to be? Is that going to be covering shadows on my apartment or where I live? So you can start seeing all of those just in an interactive way and on the comfort of your house. And because it's interactive, they can also give us like much better feedback. And then we can go back and do all the study analysis. And then the last one, it's a partnership between Smart Dublin and DCU campus. And we're using their expertise of the researchers to be looking more at a campus level, how it's uh, how people move around. Are the rooms being booked uh, and maybe there is nobody 
inside those buildings, but the lights are on. So how you can be like better managing all these states and facilities and maybe start doing like some cost savings as well. So there is all those perspectives. That's a lot. That's a <laughs> lot of stuff. I'm fascinated by what you say about having a 3D model of Dublin City. Because having a 3D model for now, I mean, we've seen some examples with Google Maps. That's amazing. But you're talking about also being able to project what the 3D model would look like in the future. That's just mind-blowing. How did you go about building that 3D model? Because that's an enormous job. Yeah, so we those are actually some of the questions that we have because building 3D models of a very big area of the city, it's very costly. And not just costly to acquire the data, but also to process, to build, to host the 3D model. So that's part of the program. And we the way that we are doing it, it's pretty much an exploring phase. So we are engaging with three different companies. They have different business models. Uh, they have different techniques uh, as well to do collection of the data. And what we are doing is really reviewing for each of the use cases. So what's the level of detail uh, we want? Do we want to look more the Google Maps street view? Do we want to look more um, like a block model? Uh, and then we are kind of like getting to a conclusion that for different use cases, we need different models. Uh, and then one of the reasons is, so the block model, you can make it even more realistic. So if you want to do a better engagement with the people about using virtual reality so they can be immersive in the space, that's the best one because it's more comfortable to be looking uh on the other hand, sometimes people just want to very easily just recognize it doesn't need to be like very high quality and comfort level because you're not going to spend that much time looking at the buildings. So then maybe the other model that is called Reality Mesh, it looks a little bit more uh, at Google Maps. But to be like higher quality, you would need to fly closer and capture too many pictures. So we are also like asking those questions. So how close, how many pictures, how do we do that? How often do we need to be capturing this data to keep updated? Uh, so parts of the projects are to answer those. And you're using drones to uh, get that imagery, are you? Yeah, so uh, for the Dublin Fire Brigade, that use case I was mentioning, that's what they're doing. So that was one of just of the discoveries. Uh, if we have specific buildings, it's very cost efficient and it gives us a very good quality model and comfort levels. If we do a drone survey, because then they can just close the area, fly the drone very close to the building, capture loads of pictures, and it's still like fine uh, for them. But when we are talking about a city scale, it's quite hard to do it in a super high quality. So we are kind of trying to see, do we need all of those? Uh, and I think the answer that we are finding is we just need a mix. We don't need every single building in high quality, but just something that is recognizable. People are familiar. They know they can locate themselves and maybe for the specific ones that we want more details or that we're going to be working on, then we just go fly, collect the data, and have a more detailed one. But Dublin is a huge place to, to cover. What was the main challenge of scaling up with those drones to cover the city? 
Yeah, so at the start of the project, we were actually not using drones. Uh, the way that we were building the models were flying airplanes. So we could capture the data and they, they could easily fly like a few hours, cover the entire city and still give us like a good kind of like model. And that's kind of like what I was mentioning. It's about mixing uh, those different levels of detail. So maybe we can just have those airplane uh, photographies uh, done and it gives us like good context and then for like the developing areas that we're doing the big blocks of like pull bag or any SDZ area then we could just go and start like doing the surveys with the drones for the fire brigades they also have like priority of buildings they don't need every single building but if they are like big employers or like have a chemical plant or something like that. So we can start doing the surveys in very detailed level. Suzanne, uh, let's move on to the uh, medical end of things. How would you describe on a scale of one to 10, say the rollout or the change to digitization during COVID? Certainly from my experience, you know, because I'd be working um, with novel technologies and, and brand new devices, you know, one area that was really adversely impacted by COVID was our ability to progress uh, clinical studies for a couple of different reasons. Theatres were were shut down because um, all of the elective type of surgery initially was was closed off. And obviously, we, you know, the, the priority was to keep hospital beds available for, for COVID patients. But as understanding of the disease progressed, elective surgeries came back on board. But of course, then we had travel uh, bans. So, we were not physically able to travel. And usually with a, with a brand new device, you would have somebody in the organization standing behind the uh, implanting physician to be available to answer questions, to provide support in person and very much, you know, uh, that face-to-face interaction, getting live feedback on the device is very important. In addition to that, we'd be collecting user experience data. We're observing how they use the device, are they doing something differently than what we expect them to do with it? Um, So we couldn't do any of that anymore. Uh, So one area that that really came into play was how digitization really actually supported us being able to get back up and running. And, you know, all of a sudden we had cameras in theatres and that sometimes was just somebody's mobile phone where you would have one of the clinical research assistants or a nurse holding up a mobile phone so we could physically observe what was going on in in a live surgery. You could see what was actually happening in real time as an implant uh, was going on and, you know, be able to collect the data that we needed. Um, Because ultimately, you know, if you applied to do a a clinical study, you're supposed to have it done within a certain time frame, or you're limited to a certain number of patients. So, you know, all of these studies stopping is is really unhelpful in terms of getting new products to the market. Uh, So it it was just, I suppose it wasn't conscious use of, um, of the technology, but it was certainly... Uh, the availability of it meant that things could progress and uh, it just it just became a solution out of the box that, that we didn't have to think of before, but uh, it, it was really useful to see how we use that. So new devices and getting them out there and improving medicine overall is your area. And you've mentioned kind of devices in general. Are you able to give me an example of like a, a widespread medical device that has been used by patients, which have come about through digitization? So I, I think, you know, if if 
really not necessarily a specific device used by patients, but if, if you think about it a bit differently, um, you know, there's been a huge increase in artificial intelligence um, implemented and, and now starting to get um, approved, you know, particularly through uh, FDA for doing analysis on scans. Um, you know, so there's been a, a lot of breakthroughs in, in being able to have machine learning looking at uh, images taken um, of potential cancerous lesions, et cetera, and, you know, where the machine is able to actually learn and feedback whether or not it looks like it could be a cancerous tumour. And, you know, there's huge challenges in that area because the the accuracy of the algorithms to make those decisions and ultimately, you know, a clinician is looking at that scan, but it's which ones to look at and being able to increase throughput, but maintain the same level of clinical care. So, you know, for, for regulators, there's a huge amount of pressure there because the speed of technology is nearly outpacing, um, you know, the, the time frame by which you need to be able to generate the data to prove that that technology is, is trustable. You've got people's lives effectively in the hands of this software. Um, so software as a medical device um, and, and all of the capability you know, that engineers bring to that in, in software coding, et cetera, and then taking that to the regulatory environment and, and putting it through, you know, risk analysis and, and all of the types of testing and uh, simulations to make sure that that works repeatedly and accurately and reliably. It's, it's really quite challenging. Um, but I think that's really, you know, it's, it's a space where a lot of, of new companies are working in. And I think the interaction with the regulators to nearly keep pace of regulation going in tandem with the technology is, is really important. And, and certainly you see, you know, the, the regulators are, are coming to the table with that, which is really positive. I was about to say, do you find the regulators are a little slow to move or does it seem to work out okay in, in your end of the world? Certainly my experience of it would be, you know, I think anybody who works in, in, in medical technology and, and indeed pharma uh, as well, you know, when you, when you hear you've got a, you know, a, an FTA audit or a TGA auditor coming to inspect your facility and, and your devices that usually um, put a few chills through the body and, you know, there's a lot of focus on getting ready and there's a lot of panic. Um, but the experience on, on that end, you know, which is checking for compliance, it's very, very different in new products. Um, and there are great opportunities to actually go and talk up front to regulators, uh, be it FDA or be it um, the competent authority in Ireland. Um, and also, you know, kind of there's there's new pathways being set up through the through the European Commission. But there's free forums where basically you can write a proposal, tell them about here's what we're trying to develop, here's what we think it's going to be and propose how you're going to test it and do an awful lot of that conversation up front with them, whereby you're sitting in the room effectively with expertise, you know, be and it's cross-functional expertise. So you'll have medical professionals present, usability, human factors, expertise, preclinical animal testing expertise. Um, sterilization is a big part as well, you know, if it's an implantable device. And uh, there's a great opportunity to interact with them and get feedback on, you know, what are they going to look for uh, in terms of the type of testing or if, you know, you need to do a clinical study and they certainly won't tell you the answer. They don't tell you what you need to do, but they will provide a lot of guidance about the gaps 
that they think that maybe your proposal is missing, things that maybe you haven't thought about. Um, and it's always great to get the, the medical professional input, you know, when, when you're talking about something that's brand new, that there's nothing similar out there. So, yeah, it's great. It's really exciting. And they're actually really collaborative at that stage. Looking back over, say, the last five years, Suzanne, uh, what's the one problem that has been solved for you by digitization? I think, um, you know, it's it's probably more of um, the solutions uh, that Jeffrey and Veronica have already been talking about. Um, so I think certainly from a manufacturing of uh, medical technology perspective, you know, uh, the move away from paper-based records happened quite a long time ago. Um, there's there's very few organizations now which would use paper-based processes. Uh, all of the documentation, the records, you know, setting up traceability for how devices are built, instructions for how devices are built, the training that's required, all of that is digitized. Um, and, you know, it is much easier to access records. It's much easier to, if you need to do an investigation on something, to be able to pull all that information from wherever it is you are in the world. And certainly if you're working in a multinational organization, everybody who is located basically worldwide is able to access all of the same information at the same time, which is fantastic. And the other thing I think that that lends itself to then as well is is that, you know, you really do have companies that are working 24 hours um, because there's always somebody awake and there's always somebody pulling a record or working on a test report or working on testing, no matter where you are in the world. So, you you know, you finish up your day and by the time you're, you're getting back to your inbox in the morning, you're getting updates on, you know, maybe, you know, a clinical study or some new device testing or, you know, so it's, it's very, very accessible. And I, I think the sharing of information and the speed and efficiency at which information is shared um, in, in that way really helps us progress things. You know, we do see a lot now, you know, certainly Ireland would be, um, you know, it's a huge success story. It's, it's a global center for medical device and medical technology manufacturing and has been for many years. And, you know, certainly I think, um, you know, the industry is at the forefront of implementation of things like, you know, Industry 4.0, being able to basically, you know, stand at a board and, and see exactly where devices are and exactly, you know, are things being built as they should be or, you know, your yields as they should be or you have more failures in manufacturing than you should be, etc. So it's much more visual, it's much more accessible, Um and that's that's fantastic. And I think that's what we want to see, that level of visibility and accessibility of information. It would be fantastic to see that move into the clinical area, you know, for patient records and access to doctors, et cetera. So we've been listening to each other and all the various projects that we've been involved in. What question would you like to ask one of the other guys on the panel? Uh, let's start with uh, Veronica. Yeah, well, because my background is in transportation, so transport engineer. Uh, I find like really fascinating about uh, Jeff uh, projects. So you mentioned all the like language barrier. Do you think with like the new technology, uh, like that they do like real time translation, are we gonna catch to that point that maybe you can have the chat boots and just like translating real time and answering all the queries that people might gonna have, maybe as part of like the solution? I don't know as well like what's the cost uh, for building this kind of solution, but maybe that's something in the future that could help. I don't know your views. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting it's a very interesting uh, question. We have been piloting uh, WhatsApp bots. And we've had uh, some great feedback from because WhatsApp is very uh, it's very widespread in Senegal at the moment. Uh, so we have been uh, testing out WhatsApp bots for customer queries and like checking account numbers, that sort of stuff. And in that, uh, I, I certainly we could build in some more uh, real time uh, translation into the local uh, languages. But the the problem is that these local dialects. Unfortunately, uh, big tech have left them behind. They're not making translation systems for Wolfie or another local tribal dialect. They're just not, unfortunately, not interested uh, in such a small community. So, unfortunately, I don't think uh, we'll we'll get to the stage where we can do some real-time translation services unless these big tech companies come out and spread more, democratize their technology and enable it for kind of minority languages. Suzanne, what about yourself? What question would you like to ask uh, Jeffrey or Veronica? Yeah, I think uh, it was really interesting listening to, um, you know, all of that management around around the port, you know, and um, all of those pieces of paper flying everywhere. And ultimately, when, when, when you boil it all down, you know, it's about moving things more efficiently. And, you know, I... I just, uh, I wonder, you know, it just sounds like such a transferable type of technology, you know, that if, you know, we were ultimately able to, you know, have patients maybe with with trackers or even hospital trolleys going, traveling to an operating theater, for instance, you know, that you would be able to see, you know, if there was a delay and not, not to move somebody or, you know, freeing up time so that you could have more efficiency and more throughput going going through, you know, what what sometimes are, are limited resources, you know, particularly things like CT scanners and MRI scanners, you know, there's there's limited resources for those. And to be able to maximize our efficiency and get more people through, you know, would be fantastic. And I was, you know, I mean, it, it seems to me that it, that type of technology has to be transferable. But uh, yeah, I'd, I'd pose that one to Jeffrey and see, see what he can do. <laughs> Well, well, the technology is very transferable because uh, we got our start originally uh, doing uh, operating a, a public bike sharing scheme uh, in Cork, Galway, Limerick and Waterford for the NTA. So if you just think of bikes, translate them to trucks, there's lots of them moving from all these bike stations around. So we use a lot of our learning from managing and running those logistics about having a shared resource uh, having predictions of capacity. And then we brought that to the uh, port, or opera, port operations field. And it was just about embedding new types of uh, technology. So instead of uh, RFID scanners and bike locks, we're moving to uh, cameras to count trucks and read number plates. So it is quite interesting how the technology, how we started off in, uh, in public bike sharing schemes then into port operations. And now we're bringing some of that uh, technology uh, into some software we're developing for a uh, national uh, railway. Uh, So it's interesting how bikes and trucks and now trains are very similar uh, sorts of problems and needs in in terms of software. And Jeffrey, uh, when listening to Suzanne talking about the medical side of things and and Veronica talking about movements in, in, in cities, is there anything you'd like to ask either one of those? Yeah, I'd be interested in asking uh, Suzanne, has digitalization impacted your uh, the supply chain? And I'm sure these devices have thousands of different parts and how maybe data sheets and specifications and all that impacts uh, your supply chain and the, into the device itself. One area that's um, 
which is quite interesting and potentially quite challenging is um, there was new requirements brought in uh, both uh, in the US and more recently in the in the EU about the um, unique device identifiers, uh, which is the barcode effectively on the label of every device. Now, we would be very used to managing things like barcodes and scanning things in and out and having automated scanning systems. But the hospitals now have to basically scan these barcodes and that becomes part of your patient file. And, you know, it used to be that these take uh, physical stickers or labels off and they'd stick them onto your paper patient file, you know, whereas now we're, we have this expectation that they're going to scan this information in and that that information is uploaded to a cloud. So if there ever had to be some kind of a recall on devices, that it's very easy for a regulator who would have access to that cloud data to be able to see where all the affected devices are. So I think there's still some challenges, you know, in terms of pulling that information in at the point of use. So where the device comes out of the box and just, you know, uh, making sure that if you open two devices, which sometimes happens if they come in different sizes and, the, and you know, the clinician's not sure which one are they going to implant. So they could open the two devices, but then, you know, making sure you only scan the one that you used um, so that that information gets uploaded. And then for manufacturers, we now have all these unique numbers for devices that all have to get uploaded in, into, into databases, which is really proven quite challenging, creating these huge data sheets that then get uploaded um, into a centralized database um, and, you know, getting all the formatting correct and all of that stuff. So, so it's a real area of learning, like. But the intent is, is that you'd have one connected supply chain. So regardless of the system each manufacturer is using, ultimately the device ends up in this database, you know, where basically the regulator is able to have visibility to, to where all devices have been used. So I think there's, there's lots of opportunity there. And on that note, we'll wrap up our podcast for today. Uh, my thanks to all of our guests, Jeffrey Rowe from Teltlick, Head of Engineering, Susanna Rourke, Managing Director with Triskel Consulting, and Veronica Mariti Sesoko from Accenture The Duck. Of course, you'll find the website and LinkedIn details for all of them in our podcast show notes which are in the description area of a podcast player right this moment. And for more episodes of our Engineers Journal Amplified podcast, do click the follow button on your player right now. And remember, full members get advanced access to new episodes online at engineersireland.ie. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, thank you for listening to our Engineers Journal Amplified podcast. Talk to you soon.